0: Welcome to the Booktopia podcast. I'm here with Emily Maguire to talk about her new book, This Is What a Feminist Looks Like. Um, I'm Joel Nae and thanks for joining us, Emily.
1: Hello, thanks for having me.
0: Um, this is such an interesting book and feels very comprehensive, so it's quite hard to get a, <laughs> uh, uh, to find a starting point, I think, for the conversation. So I thought we'd just maybe just start with why you wrote it, what it's about, You know, what started you on this journey.
1: Yeah, um, so this is what a feminist looks like. Is basically a introduction to everything that's happened in the Australian women's movement for the last two hundred or so years. So it <laughs> is comprehensive. <laughs> um, so it, it might help to talk about the story behind it a little bit. I was actually approached by the National Library of Australia um, to have a look in their really extensive, amazing archives, where they have all this incredible. Um, photographs and documents and letters uh, relating to the Australian suffragists and feminist movements over the last couple of hundred years Um, and they approached me to talk about writing a book that would actually introduce a lot of that material and those big historical moments to um, contemporary readers. Once I got in there and started to have a look it was so fascinating and I realised that even though I've sort of been active as a feminist for more than a decade and I've written two books about feminism and young women I just knew none of this history um, and I became really excited about the idea of telling some of those stories from our history. And in this moment when many people are thinking about what needs to be done now, what's the way forward to really look at what those battles from the past have been and actually how we got to this moment now?
0: Yeah and did you how did you decide to um, attack this as a <laughs> I mean it's like you say it's 200 years of history. Yeah. Uh, it's got I, th- I think the way you ended up structuring it is a really, Interesting way to do it. Uh.
1: Yeah, so I started looking at um, what were the big moments. That was the initial impulse, so things uh, that spring to mind immediately like, you know, when and how did we get equal pay? When and how did um, women first get the vote? And, of course, once I started looking into those things and many others, I realised that none of those were single moments and Mm. some of them, for example, equal pay, arguably, we're still not there even though there have been several court decisions and legal precedents that should have been the moment. So I instead have um, structured it around sort of themes. So there's all about politics and how far we've come and how that's happened. Um, I looked into the workplace, how women have actually moved forward in various different professions and also the whole equal pay thing. Um, There's a chapter in there about the body and how women's relationships to their bodies in every sense and especially the, the legal sense and actually having control over our own bodies, how that has changed over time. Also women's relationship to the home and then finally women's relationship with public space which is a really big interest to me as a writer and as someone who uses her voice in public all the time um, to look at back at some of those women who really opened up um, the opportunities for women to actually have a voice in the public arena.
0: Mm. And obviously these areas overlap in pretty yeah. significant ways. Yes. And I think one of the interesting sort of... Um, connective tissue is the, is the way that you've um, pulled out significant women um, throughout this history and have the sort of potted history part of dot points. Just And those were just amazing. I couldn't believe that some of these women had just done so much in such a short period of time.
1: Yeah, so one of the really exciting things for me was discovering all these feminist heroines that I didn't know that I had. <laughs> And I kind of – obviously, I knew we all knew that a lot's changed and a lot's happened, but learning about the women who actually made those things happen um, was incredible. And women like Louisa Lawson, who really in Australia most people know her son, Henry Lawson, a lot better than Mm. they know the mother. And she was an extraordinary woman who came out of really extreme poverty and – um, a terrible, probably abusive marriage, and then as a single woman supporting herself, started her own newspaper, The Dawn. This was still 14 years before women had the vote in New South Wales, and she started it as a as a vehicle to tell women's stories, to be um, to help women become more politically conscious and active, but also to have, you know, basic householding tips for women who are struggling to get by. Or sort of the first women's magazine and paper, and she had an all female staff and an all female printing crew. She was boycotted by the printers' union who, um, you know, women couldn't be members of the unions and so therefore she was using non-unionised labour. They sabotaged her in every way possible um, and she really fought for that, to have that paper and to have that voice um, and to know about a woman like her as a writer and as a feminist and to sort of start putting these pieces together with other incredibly inspiring women was a big draw to me of this book. Um, But then the other thing that really got me going too is actually from a quote of Louisa Lawson that I came across where she talks about how it's the power of women's voices and thoughts coming together that create this, I'm I'm paraphrasing, but that create a real river and that river turns the wheel and we grind out a new era. And I kind of really kept that quote from Louisa Lawson as a touchstone um, to remind myself that although these standout women, inspirational figures are really important and they should be household names like, you know, Don Bradman or Farlap is. Um, There's also this mass of women and some men, all these feminists who have done all the unsung stuff and their names haven't been recorded but they wrote the letters and lobbied politicians and, you know, made the phone calls and collected signatures and they ran the refuges and whether they were driving people around or acting as cooks or acting as translators they you know held consciousness raising sessions and education sessions in their workplaces and their homes and there's just it took so many people to make every single one of these advances in women's rights and that became a really important thing for me to think about how this information how this history is useful to us now and I think that was the real standout factor that everybody has a place in this movement and not everybody can be or wants to be a leader or a public figure. But every one of those leaders and public figures was backed up and supported by this mass of other women who were doing what they could, when they could. And that's really what made the change happen.
0: Yeah, I, I, I feel like it may be just because I've only recently read it. But having read Sally Rugg's book recently about the marriage equality mm. movement, and a big part of that is like telling the story of how many people it takes to mm. make social change and to make it's not just making the political change it's making getting preparing the ground for having made these changes so it felt like this felt like that but more so spread over 200 years of um you know australian history and it really illustrated that point to me i felt like i mean you start the book i think with a fantastic quote which i didn't expect to come out of from from you, just knowing you and thinking, oh, this is one of the most informed feminists I know. <laughs> but your quote was like, uh, if if I considered feminism at all, it would be to think, good job, old ladies from the past. Thanks for fixing sexism, so you don't have to be angry. So we don't have to be angry, shouty feminists like you. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so that, that, was, that was a quote from past me, not past me now, you, obviously, yes, and, yes. and not even me. Right before I wrote this book, I've been a bit more aware than that. But, of course, but certainly I didn't. Um, grow up with a you know with an actual consciousness of feminism mm. as a movement like I grew up um, post second wave feminism and with those vague ideas of girls can do anything boys can do and you know blah mm. blah blah um, but I I didn't have any specific um, feminist ideas taught to me I didn't um, know that I knew anyone who identified as a feminist although now I realize I must have um, and so I did really have this sense that feminism was a good thing but that was a It was something from the past and we were done. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's been a, you know, 20, 30 year probably journey of discovering how wrong I was Um, and, you know, moving through the stages of anger about that and into actually wanting to to do something about it because um, that's another thing that looking at the history tells you is that the winds are never permanent. You know, there's this idea I think sometimes a really comforting one that progress is inevitable and things get better simply because time moves on but things only get better because people fight for it over time and those wins aren't permanent and there's always people or other forces looking to turn them back and I think we've seen that um, a lot in the international stage lately and and here in Australia too with various issues Um, and so to think of feminism as something that is over or that's done or that just we pick up every now and then to have a particular argument about something rather than a kind of living force in our lives that we need to stay alert and keep things moving, I think is um, really important.
0: Mm. I, I think that's r- really true, that sense of compl- – it's very easy to become complacent mm. uh, but about feminism in particular because women make up 50% of the population. Mm. And so therefore you sort of think, well, 50% of the population can't be treated badly. <laughs> Some <laughs> part of you, you convinces you that mm. it was in all sorts of areas of life and that's partially why I liked this really – um, overwhelming tide of waves of different things changing in this book it gave me that strong sense of uh, um, c- connection to history and how how much work went into it. Um, and it inspired me to rewatch Julia Gillard's speech, which I hadn't mm. I have watched a few times. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I watched it last night, and I loved it again, all over again. But it also upset me so much to realize that there are there's so many people, and it was only in 2010 but it feels like things have even changed since then. Um, do you have a sense of where we're heading? <laughs>
1: <laughs> I feel like we're in a really good moment in terms of awareness of of the way that sexism and misogyny are still in operation in the world in various um, different ways and we're in a really good place for awareness of that and will to change that and to fight that. But the reason we're in a really good place for that is because things have gone so rotten in so many ways and women's rights, certainly in the United States and um, um, and, and here too we're having a protracted battle in the New South Wales Parliament at the moment um, over reproductive rights. When things are getting really bad, that is when the feminist movement does kind of build popular force again. So the reason that it's a really great time for feminism is actually because it's a pretty bad time for women and we have seemed to have gone backwards in a lot of ways. Um, and so, you know, it is, it is that kind of... It's two sides of it. It's wonderful to feel so much solidarity with other women and other feminists around the world and to really feel great support and um, great enthusiasm in the movement... But it is really um, it is really sad and sobering to to think, you know, you've probably seen there's there's lots of photos of different versions of it, but the older woman with a protest sign saying, I can't believe we still have to protest this stuff. And there's yeah, <laughs> there's I more sweary that. versions of it and there's a lot of different versions. But that is kind of the sense a bit that, that the fact that we are having this great moment for feminism is is also that moment of thinking, like, you know. I can't believe we still are talking about this. I can't believe we're still having... And it's the same when you look at the history. It's a lot of the battles that we are fighting now are are only dissimilar in in degree than the ones that feminists were fighting for 50, 100, 150 years
0: ago. And, you know, someone like Tony Abbott can just bald-faced say totally biological determinist Mm -hmm. stuff that you just wouldn't be out of place in the... You know, suffragist movement from the, early, the turn of the century. It's that, that stuff was just totally shocking. Even mm. though I knew that he had said that stuff, mm. hearing someone like Gillard just say it again boldly, and you know, it's on out or direct quotes, and uh, you know, he was the prime minister yeah. <laughs> ten years ago. Yeah, you know, it's and even the way shocking. a lot of
1: people would write that off and say it's a it's a quirk of his or he's a bit of an eccentric personality. Mm. You know. Um, Uh, that is actually quite a common sentiment. It's just we, you know, it is a bit shocking to hear it from a Prime Minister or a senior Lib, but a lot of of what is really insidious about sexism and misogyny and these patriarchal ideas is that many of us do internalise them, which is why women can have some pretty sexist ideas too, and men who think they're really woke have also internalised a lot of them because it is the water we're swimming in a lot of ways. And therefore you have your kind of outsized characters, your Abbots or your Trumps or your Ellen Jones who say things that are really shocking and everyone agrees they're really shocking and sexist and misogynist and whatever. But then you have this much, much larger population of people who laugh it off or write it off or forgive and forgive and forgive and write off the jokes down the pub that might be denigrating women or all these kind of sort of atmospheric bits of incidental almost sexism and misogyny that... um, that do just become, like I said, sort of the, the water we're all swimming in or the air that we breathe, and they allow an environment where these more um, obvious and outsized acts of misogyny and sexism, the real injustices that are created, can happen because there is this level of um, not taking things seriously until it's the most serious.
0: Yeah, and I think that's one of the things that's interesting about reading history, particularly of the suffrag- mm. a suffragist movement, is how obvious the sexism was back then, you know? Yeah. You know, it's it's almost refreshing. It's like people just <laughs> said what they thought yeah. instead of covering it up with these fake statements. And yet at the same time, Australia was at this sort of cutting edge of women's rights and it feels like we've got – the people who are sexist are just better at keeping those views to themselves or finding more convenient ways of saying it in a, that won't offend people as much – Um, Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah, that sense of even though things were obviously bad, uh, that we were in a better place or something, or we we had a better sense of progress. Is that? Do do you get that sense, or do you Um, still feel? I would rather live now. (laughs) Yeah, obviously, yes. In that
1: sense, we're not in a better place. But no, I totally get what you're saying. That that um, it was it was more honest and upfront, and and I think it was easier to know. what ideas you were opposing directly. There wasn't that underhanded um, kind of atmospheric sexism. I mean, I guess the thing at, at around the time that the suffragists were, were trying to get the right for women to vote here is um, sexism wasn't an accusation because it was really mainstream and normal to think that men and women were fundamentally different. And, in fact, even the suffragists thought that. Um, and so from a modern perspective, these first-wave feminists, the suffragists, Their ideas were really sexist from where we stand now, a lot of them. Um, Of course we agree with them that women should have the vote but the reasons a lot of them gave and argued for why women need the vote is that women are more moral and are nurturers and are kinder and better and, you know, it's the God's police idea. um, Anne Summers popularised in her book Damned Hors and God's Police. It was this idea that women are God's police and they are a civilising force and they are more moral and therefore it will make politics better Um, and kinder and more moral to have women involved Um, and that idea now is you know it's a really sexist idea that women are fundamentally one thing and and men are kind of beasts who need to be civilized and kept in line and so yeah it's it's really hard to actually as much as there's a lot we can relate to in these earlier waves of feminism and the activism there's also some things that are just so profoundly different that it, it, it can be hard to to get our head around having you know feminist heroines stand up and talk about how you know, women are natural nurturers and mothers and um, talk about how women need to be protected from sex. You know, things like that that are just really alien to our way of thinking now um, about the rights of women. They were sort of at the real forefront of this this argument that women should have a place in politics.
0: Mm. I think that's a really interesting sort of brings me to an interesting overall point that I was thinking about as I read the book about the balance that needs to be struck between female representation and gender essentialism mm. that you need to sort of fight for female representation irrespective of the fact that you believe that women mm. are the same as me mm. mm. <laughs> I, I, and I don't think I reconciled that in my head <laughs> you know part of me does think well there must be some differences yeah. but I don't think they're meaningful differences uh, on, on a large scale yeah. um, and yet I do believe in increasing female representation in mm. all these areas. And yet I don't know how to re- I don't know yeah, how to strike that. There's balance. there's a
1: there's a lot to think about there. There there is a there is obviously a strong case for gender equity um, and to have equal numbers of men and women because Um, that's how the population is made up and our parliaments and representative bodies are supposed to be actually representative Um, and that's the same argument for why we need more diversity in every sense i mean we need greater um, diversity in terms of cultural background religious background age Um, our parliament is very centralized around one age group Um, and uh, you know class or economic background all of those things there's a um, easy argument to make. I think that our parliament is absolutely not representative of the Australian population and gender is a part of that. And so just on that basic principle, we should have around 50% of representatives being women. But I think the other thing we're thinking about is is not making the mistake of thinking that having um, around 50% women as our representatives will make this a feminist utopia and will make all policy... Um, not all women have a feminist... Um, philosophy or agenda that they would bring into parliament and many men do or would have <laughs> if they are elected in um, because sexism and misogyny are not um, confined to men and um, feminism and ideas of equality are not confined to women um, and we have plenty of examples uh, throughout the world and also here of, of women who have um, fought for policies that you know, are arguably really bad for women as a whole and as a group. And so, you know, it's it's. I think it's really important to to argue for proper representation in parliament, but also we have to still always be making the case for different pieces of policy and talking about how they affect women as a as an actual separate issue. Whoever is sitting in parliament, um, I think the other thing I'd say is where it can sometimes make a difference, which is why you probably get that feeling that it has to make a difference, is that the reason diversity is good is in a representative body is because people bring themselves into that and you don't know what you don't know so someone's life experiences are naturally going to affect what they notice and what they fight for and what they care about and we we see that in parliament all the time we saw it with um Jackie Lambie for example who had a real awareness for example of um drug addiction and how there's problems there in getting rehab for people because she had a family experience you know um, national MPs will often be actual farmers and they'll bring that experience to the parliament Inevitably, if you're a woman living in a society that is still um, unequal and has a lot of sexism, you are bringing an awareness to how various pieces of policy are going to um, inordinately affect women. And that is just something that you know from your lived experience. And so that is what's going to make a difference in the parliament. And, you know, we did see that in the RU486 legislation that came through a few years ago. Um, There was... That's um, cross-party support there, um, with women from all different political stripes coming in, and it wasn't that women um, are just naturally more likely to support, you know, progress in terms of uh, reproductive rights. It's that all of these women had experience either of themselves or people they're very close to, or at least, you know, experience of having a real bodily sense of worry about unwanted pregnancy um, that men just don't have that life experience. And so the urgency of this particular piece of legislation just wasn't as apparent to them, I think.
0: Mm. I think that um, probably brings us to the the future. Mm. and I mean, in the hopefully very near future, the New South Wales Parliament and what they're debating at the moment. I wondered if we could... um, wrap up our chat with something a bit more optimistic. <laughs> I, don't opti- I don't know how optimistic that case actually is. but <laughs> um,
1: I think the case for abortion reform in New South Wales, reform in New South Wales, um, it, I mean, it is going to be something that gets through. It's it's being stalled and stalled and there's all kinds of problems there. It's, I think what the, um, the battle for that has done is brought the fact to a lot of people's attention um, that abortion is not decriminalised in New South Wales that it is still against the law and I think before this um, act of parliament got up and all the fighting over it a lot of people just didn't even realise that that was the case and that alone that awareness is a really good thing um, because you know as I think is sort of an undertow in all this conversation is this idea that um, we've done all this work and we've made all these changes and things are fine now and actually getting people to talk about the ways in which they're not and that we still have um, things entrenched in the law that really disadvantage and harm women um, is is really important and I think the other thing with that case is you know once people are aware of things people get activated and there's a lot of um, I guess complaining and denigrating of online activism as sort of you know slacktivism and not doing the real work but we, we have actually seen so many examples I mean me too movement black lives matter movement of movements that have started with online awareness and activism and really had real life effects and affecting changes and building momentum and to me the real hope we have now is if if we look at all the hard work that the suffragists did and then the second wave feminists did and the changes they made um and they really did have to work so hard all the time they were printing pamphlets and photocopying and making phone calls and traipsing all over the streets collecting petitions and we're streaks ahead of that just from the starting point now in, times, in terms of organising, and we still have to, you know, push harder and go beyond just online forms. But that first stage of actually connecting with other people who care about the same issues we do and, and building momentum for a movement, organising marches, organising lobbies, all of those things, we're really in a wonderful, wonderful time um, to find to find other feminists and other people who care and, and to start that organising effort.
0: Yeah, and that is a really optimistic way of thinking about it, and I think... Um, this book in that sense is very optimistic because it's that sense of if we all band together and try and we are patient. <laughs> but not uh, too patient, patient. patient. Don't just wait. Patient <laughs> is maybe the wrong word. I mean persistent. Uh, uh, persistent. <laughs> yeah. It's it's that it's how long things take Things just took so much longer in the past. <laughs> that was why.
1: Yes, yes, they did, and <laughs> and and some things that yeah uh, still take too long, and and it is easy to get impatient, and it's um, the thing is to not give up because mm. it's taking too long and to keep going. And I think the thing with everybody can play a part. That that is the thing that I keep coming back to. That there is a place for people to do all kinds of things in this movement. Um, it's it's not just the leaders we see up front as useful as they are. It's it really is always going to be the mass of people supporting that and putting the shoulder to the wheel that's that's going to make changes come through
0: absolutely well uh emily mcguire thank you so much for joining us today thank you and you can buy emily's book this is what a feminist looks like from booktopia.com.au thanks for listening to the booktopia podcast don't forget to subscribe to us on soundcloud and itunes and if your eyeballs need a workout check us out on youtube at booktopia tv And don't forget, for all books featured on this episode and all episodes of the Booktopia podcast, head to Booktopia, Australia's local bookstore, at www.booktopia.com.au. Thanks for listening.